going on everybody welcome to the latest episode of our podcast mass media stereo it is sunday september 19th uh I, my name is court i will be your host for the duration with me as always is chris how's it going everybody this is of course andres's bye week but hopefully he will be back next week uh we have a few topics we're going to talk about today we have three kind of quick ones out of the gate and then two sort of main stories so uh the first topic we're going to talk about involves christopher nolan he's actually leaving warner brothers he's been there a long time uh we'll talk about that yesterday september 18th was batman day 2021 matt reeves put out a tweet with a picture and talked a little bit about the Batman and what we can expect uh, coming forward. So we'll go through that a little bit. Then we are going to do a full spoilers review. Of course, we won't go beat for beat through the entire story, but we will be spoiling things, specific things we want to talk about, about the new Clint Eastwood Warner Brothers film, Cry Macho, which uh, I have a non-spoiler review on my channel if you want to check that out. Uh, Chris just watched it today. I'm eager to get his thoughts. And then finally, and it sucks that we have to do this, uh, <clears throat> On September 14th, I believe it was, uh, the world was very shocked to find out that someone who I consider one of the funniest people of all time, at least people that I am aware of, Norm MacDonald passed away at 51 years old of uh, leukemia, uh, a nine-year battle with the disease that he kept completely secret. Very few people, even his friends and family, were aware of it. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to talk about... Uh, uh, our love for Norm. Well, I won't presume to say that you love Norm. You'll, you'll say that, Norm. but okay. I do love Norm, yeah. Me too. Uh, we're going to talk about some of our favorite bits of his. Um, we're going to talk about his movie. Uh, whatever. We're just going to, we're going to wax nostalgic on, on Norm MacDonald. So we'll uh, do that at the uh, bottom end of the show. Um, of course, we want to remind you that if you don't have time to watch a long ass YouTube video, you can always find audio only versions of this podcast on places like Spotify and Google podcasts. And of course, we want to encourage you to, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, hit the like button, share it around. It helps the video get to more people. It helps the channel grow. We appreciate that very much. And uh, of course, jump into the comments. Um, tell us what you thought of Cry Macho or maybe your favorite memory of norm mcdonald i do read all the comments and i respond when i can so don't think that they are going unread so we're going to jump into it here <clears throat> so our first topic is christopher nolan um you know while warner brothers did release tenet in september of last year uh in theaters as per their deal uh christopher nolan is known to be very much a theatrical exhibition purist um he's not okay with his movies being just released on hbo max or anything like that he's not really okay with other filmmakers films being released that way if that's not what the filmmaker wants and of course with the whole pandemic going on warner brothers for their entire 2021 slate decided to release everything day and date in theaters as well as on hbo max uh that got uh christopher nolan's uh got him a little bit upset uh, he had some some choice words, as did uh, Dune director Denis Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. um, so Chris Nolan basically suggested that he was going to be parting ways with Warner Brothers, um, which I'm not sure. I can't remember. His first film was an in independent film called Following. That was obviously not Warner Brothers. I'm not sure if Memento, which was his first studio film, was. It, it was not. Memento was still technically independent but it was um but it was not made by warner brothers or wasn't distributed by warner brothers his okay. first one 
with Warner Brothers was Insomnia, with, which is uh, my least favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, I, I'd probably say, which is which is saying something because it's not a bad little movie. No, so it's not. When when your least when you're when your someone's least favorite movie is of yours is still pretty good. That's mm-hmm. a great track record. But since then, that was 2002. He has released every single movie yeah. um, since through Warner Brothers. Yeah. And uh, news broke recently. Basically, he was saying he might be leaving Warner Brothers. His new, his latest film, the one he's working on right now, is about um, uh, Oppenheimer and the development of the nuclear bomb. So mm. Nolan doing a little more, a little bit more of the World War II historical stuff after Dunkirk, of course. Mm. And of course, all of the studios, all the distributors were clamoring to get him. Uh, the, it is official. Uh, he is going to be going over to Universal. Mm-hmm. And I believe, let me bring it up here, but I believe that the price tag that he got. Dude, oh my God. I have a list of what, what he got. It wasn't just the price tag. Okay. So um, I'll let you I'll let you say it, but if but no, I have no, a thing. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't have it okay. in front of me yet. So so this is so well before before I get into it, I just want to say that I mean this is this is big news, I think, for for a lot of you know film fans and people who are in, interested in kind of the industry and how, you know not just watching movies, but kind of like the, the behind the scenes dealings. Um, and Christopher Nolan is, is, had quickly become one of the biggest filmmakers in the world. Like several of his films have made over a billion dollars um, in a lot of his original projects, not even just the Dark Knight films, made, you know, like 800 million, 700 million, whatever. It's, it, it, he's one of those few filmmakers that has put out original content that, makes big box office and it gets a, a lot of critics uh, accolades and it's he's like that one of those prestige filmmakers that Denis Villeneuve is also like soon like kind of quickly becoming as well yeah. that you don't really see too often and this is this is like the biggest Hollywood breakup since I don't know Brangelina it's it's a big deal because yeah like you said Warner Brothers was his go-to studio since 2002 they had given him in the in the past like an unprecedented amount of, of freedom and creative control in his product projects, such as um, you know Inception and Interstellar and Dunkirk, and the 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 breakup was kind of a long not a long time coming, but it, it stemmed from last year. And I don't have like one specific article to bring it up, but it started brewing when two two things happened. One was essentially Tenet that was coming out last year, which uh, part of Nolan, Christopher Nolan's deal with Warner Brothers was essentially that he was going to get like 20% of the box office gross. So Christopher Nolan was adamant that the tenant would receive a theatrical release. Yeah. He didn't want it to, to move anywhere. And it did really receive a theatrical release. But there was reports and such that were coming out long after Tenet had, had released that, that Christopher Nolan wanted to delay Tenet to like 2021, which as uh, other films have come out this year have shown, you know, although the, the, the box office is not roaring back to life, it, there's still life there and yeah. there's still money to be made. So he wanted to, to delay it. Warner Brothers didn't. And they instead kind of made it so that Tenet was like this, was the experiment of 2020. That was like the biggest movie that was released in 2020 uh, during the pandemic. And it didn't do that well financially. And Warner Brothers kind of threw him under the bus because there was countless articles about like, oh, Christopher Nolan demands that it be seen in theaters and blah, blah, blah. 
making it seem like he was the one that was strong arming him to release right. it in July, August, September, whatever it actually came out. When reports later have, have indicated that he wanted to move it and this whole, and they, they wanted to move it. And, and the, the spin coming out of the studio was making him seem like this unreasonable douche that was like, I demand my movie be released in the summer of 2020, pandemic be damned. When in reality, he was like, I want to make money off of this. So let's push it back. Yeah. So that was the start of it. And then, like you mentioned, essentially, uh, the, the transition that Warner Brothers decided that all of the movies without seemingly consulting anybody, any of the filmmakers, any of the, anybody working in those films, that all of the new movies were going to be released day and date on HBO Max. That was the final straw that kind of broke the camel's back because yeah. he, he was fucking pissed. And um, yeah, would, well, I guess what I was going to ask was essentially like, it's been known for a bit. I think that it was, it was expected that he wasn't going to stick with Warner Brothers because we heard the rumblings of it. But did you... How do I say this? I find I find this like really fascinating. I don't know. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna toss it back to you. Essentially, his choice to go to Universal. Do you think this is a big deal, or do you think that we're like blowing it out of proportion by talking about this? I mean, I think it's I think it's worth mentioning because he is you know one of the biggest filmmakers in the world, yeah. um, and I, I think it makes sense. I mean, Warner Brothers really did a lot of filmmakers dirty. Um, of course, the, the one exception being Patty Jenkins and uh, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman 1984. Um, they also had um, back-end deals where they would get a cut of the box office gross. And when Warner Brothers decided to release it on HBO Max, mm -hmm. they basically, they made a deal with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot. And they said, listen, because we're not going to put it in theaters or we're going to give a very limited theatrical run, I don't remember, um, we want to honor the, the back-end deal. So we're going to go under the assumption that it would have made a billion dollars and we will give you your percentage cut of that. And that was the right thing to do. That was the fair thing to do. Um, but then they didn't do it for anybody else. Christopher Nolan, Denis Villeneuve. And uh, of course, also um, a lot of these movies are heavily financed by legendary pictures. They were supposed to get box office cut. And then, so that I believe there was possibly a lawsuit yeah. going forward there. Mm -hmm. I think it only makes sense that this was the, the choice Nolan made, not necessarily mm -hmm. universal specifically, but to walk away from Warner brothers. Um, and I think, I think it's good because I think, like I said, Warner brothers did some people dirty and, and, you know, they've made their bed and now they got a lie in it. Yeah. And they've lost a guy who's made them billions of dollars. Yeah, which yeah, definitely their most kind of prestigious filmmaker that that was with them for for decades, and I I'm I'm actually pretty excited about the move, and it's not because I'm I'm jumping on the bandwagon of of Snyder fans that are hating on Warner Brothers. I don't hate Warner Brothers, but it seemed like for the past few years, it, there really was kind of like a monopoly of the box office and of of the movies that kind of that that made the most money, and it was Disney. You know, they had Pixar in Marvel and Star Wars, they were number one. And then closely followed was Warner Brothers. And a lot of these other studios that, you know, I'd grown up with um, weren't really making, were, you know, they were still having like a successful movie or two, plays like, things like Universal, Paramount, um, 20th Century Fox, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, for, so it's exciting to me because it's like, 
okay, for a bit, it's been like Disney is just making all the money followed by Warner Brothers that also has a lot of franchises, including, you know, comic book movies and, and Harry Potter and such like that. Um, but I'm excited that like, okay, maybe other studios are kind of are coming coming back. It's not just going to be the same studios making the same stuff that we see all the time. Yeah, Universal, if, if this all goes well, this deal, then they probably have like a, a good partnership. They could get a good partnership with him for years to come. Well, um, and, yeah. because he was at Warner Brothers for so long, we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, we know that, that Christopher Nolan is a very loyal filmmaker. And yeah. I think that's mm -hmm. why he was so upset with Warner Brothers because that yeah. loyalty didn't go the other way, right? Exactly, completely. He it, he felt, I think, justifiably kind of backstabbed by them because um, there was a lot of changing hands of studio heads. So yeah, it made sense that he moved. I'm glad that he is moving. I Again, like I'd like to see some more kind of big prestigious films coming out of studios that aren't just, you know, Disney or Warner Brothers. Um, yeah. I pulled up, um, not to go on for this too much longer, but I pulled up the demands that Christopher Nolan had that were granted to him. Okay. So, uh, there's a few more, but there, there's six. One is that the budget of the film is gonna be $100 million, okay? Uh, so, which is actually one of his lower budgeted yeah. films since The Dark Knight. Um, marketing is gonna be 100 million as well. So wow. uh, he's going to get 20% of first dollar gross. Now, that's very significant because a lot of times, um, for in Hollywood, whether it's actors or filmmakers, they would sign a contract and the terminology would be that they would get a percentage of a back end, essentially meaning that after a movie has, you know, gone through the, you know, the theatrical run and after it's recouped its budget and this, this and that, if there's anything left, then you can get some. And there's been a lot of, you know, big lawsuits over the years of what's known as Hollywood accounting which is essentially Hollywood accountants being like, oh, you know, this movie that was like this big massive hit that the newspapers and news articles all, all wrote about, it actually didn't make any money. So you don't get any percent of the back end because, right. uh, yeah. So it's him saying that it's first dollar gross means what it sounds like. He's going to get paid regardless. Yeah. Um, so that's huge. He gets 100% creative control. Makes sense. The movie is going to be playing in one at least 100 days in theaters first. Now that's huge. That's a long time in that general. Is. But even but especially during the pandemic when people are talking about shortening the window to 45 days, he's adamant that like no, this is not going, to, you know, you're not going to see this in streaming. If you want to see it, you're going to have to either see it in theaters or you're going to wait, which yeah. incentivizes people going. Um and the last thing is that the studio Universal cannot release another film of theirs either three three weeks prior nor three weeks after, meaning there's a six week buffer that Universal can't cross for this one movie. Holy shit, dude! Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a power move. That's a power move. That's I've never I've never heard, I mean I don't know about some of the dealings that Steven Spielberg might have had in like the '90s or, or such, but I've I've never heard of a studio just bending over backwards this much for one director uh good for him man i mean i'm excited for the movie too i i love his big kind of spectacle stuff but i i'm excited that he's gonna do seemingly a, a straightforward drama again because it's been like since the prestige i think since he's done just just a, uh, a drama uh so yeah very excited yeah 
yeah totally all right mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> let's move on so just quickly i'll bring it up here yesterday was of course batman day which is relatively meaningless uh, and it changes every year for whatever reason they just sort mm-hmm. of arbitrarily say mm, this day will be batman exactly day. yeah it doesn't mean a goddamn thing but Mm-mm. uh to celebrate uh matt reeves who is of course the director of the batman starring robert pattinson which comes mm-hmm. out i believe in march looking yeah. forward to that mm-hmm. um he just tweeted out the following and i will uh, i will clip out the tweet and put it on the screen when i edit this uh, but he wrote, wow, I've been away for so long, just popping my head out of the editing room for a moment to say happy Batman day. Can't wait to share a lot more with you, uh, with you all four weeks from today at DC fandom. Oh, sorry, about, yeah. sorry about the messy desk, long hours, the Batman. Uh, of course, last year, last summer, I believe it was summer 2020, DC did fandom, which was essentially like an online Comic-Con. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they had panels for Wonder Woman 84 and the Batman and all this kind of stuff. It was just, I think it was a two or three hour online thing. You could tune into for Mm -hmm. free and it was pretty cool. Uh, Some of it was was pretty cheesy, but whatever. Um, But that of course is where they dropped that first trailer for the Batman, which had us all freaking out because we're bad Mm -hmm. geeks. And of course, Matt Reeves was speaking to uh, Aisha Tyler in the fan dome which I'm pretty sure it was all green screen, but whatever. Um, and talking about the film, and it was actually, it's a really interesting panel. I think it's about 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are doing another fandom next month. Um, <clears throat> we've been assuming for a while that we'll probably get another trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he went on to say, hang on. Let me find it here. Uh, he said, uh, Uh, What's really important about this iteration is that a lot of the other stories are about how he had to master his fear and master himself in order to become Batman. And that in that Batman state, he's sort of his best self. For me, what was exciting was not doing that, not doing the origin, not doing what we've seen done so beautifully in other movies. Uh, In the middle of this criminological experiment, we will see him becoming see him in the becoming of batman we're going to see him make mistakes as batman to see him grow and fail and be heroic and do all of the things that we associate with batman but in a way that felt very human and very flawed chris what do you make of those comments uh very excited i mean i've been excited for this movie ever since i heard about you know matt reeves being attached and robert pattinson and of course that trailer that came out last year when the movie was supposed to come out in 2021 it was supposed to come out october this year it's a bummer but we're very close march uh the trailer was amazing seriously i i watched i've seen that a million times massive batman fan and, and this is really looking like it's going in the direction that i want it to be and the more that I hear Bat Reeves talk about it, the more excited I get. You said Hearing, you said Bat Reeves. Did I say Bat Reeves? That's what okay. it sounded like to me. Well, I mean, that's his name now. Bat Reeves. Uh, it's a it's a badge of honor. He it's he's hitting the nail right in the head of like what I think a lot of Batman fans, myself included, want from from a movie is that I think everybody knows the origin story by now. Uh, yep. We've seen it done. You know, we've seen. It, even though it wasn't necessarily Batman year one, we've seen the origin. We've seen kind of the beginnings of Batman all the way back from Tim Burton's films. Then of course, Batman Begins, which did a massive deep dive. The whole show Gotham, which is not necessarily about Bruce Wayne, but they show a young Bruce Wayne a lot through it. Mm-hmm. We've seen it. We've seen it. And I think that everybody's just kind of wanting a Batman that's a little bit more secure, just kind of Batman in media res, already doing it. He mm-hmm. 
He's already met some of these villains. Some of them are still new. Uh, I don't need to see him figuring out like, oh, bats, that's the symbol I should use. I don't need to see him making the, the you know, assembling the bat cave again. Just show Batman being Batman, the, you know, detective, the greatest detective in the world. Um, well, and even, even like Batman versus Superman, we, <clears throat> we clock in with yeah. a Batman who's in his forties, but we still see the flashback to his parents in the alley. They yeah. did it again in Joker. Like, yeah, seen it, seen it. We, we get it. We get it. Yeah. We know what happens to his family. Um, I hope we don't even get a flashback in this because we don't need it. It's, yeah. I know that some, some people have criticized how the Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man series with Tom Holland hasn't really mentioned Ben, uh, Uncle Ben, but it, but to me, I'm like, no, we don't need it. I get it. I, everyone knows what happened with Spider-Man and everybody certainly knows what happened with, with Batman. Well, and actually but, like, just to stay on Spider-Man for a couple of seconds, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's in, um, I think it's in Far From Home where he's packing his suitcase and you just see like the monogram, like BP on the suitcase, mm-hmm. little thing. Or even when he's talking to Ned in Homecoming where he says something about like, I can't leave Aunt May right now after everything that's happened. Like it's a little subtle nod. Mm-hmm. That's all we need. We know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be happy with with him being in Wayne Manor and, and there's like a, you know, an oil painting of his parents, you know, over yeah. a mantelpiece or something. And he has a little moment looking at it. That's fine. I just don't need to see a flashback of him in the alley. No. Anyway, um, that was a young child running, by the way, in case anybody oh, was wondering. figure out. It's like, okay. Um, yeah, no, I'm very excited and I'm stoked for, uh, for DC fandom. Um, I know it's not... They haven't promised that there's going to be a new trailer, but I think everyone's expecting it, especially Matt Reeves, sorry, Bat Reeves's comments seem to hint like, okay, here's a little hint until DC fandom. So right. we're going to be seeing some new footage. The movie, like I said, was supposed to come out next month. Um, so I can imagine that even though he's still editing, they probably are, are in a pretty good shape with it. You know, like probably a lot of scenes are done. Um, maybe they're tightening up certain things and special effects, but they probably have a lot more footage than what they did last year. Cause even, even then they were still early into production. That teaser at, at DC fandom was really like, Oh, we've only been shooting for like maybe a month. And they've, you know, he said, know. he said in the panel that they'd only, when they called that trailer, they'd only shot 25% of the movie. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So there's still so much that we have not even seen from this movie. And I can't wait. I think DC fandom is October 20 something. I don't know. I'm excited for it. Yeah, let me look that up here. Yeah, that man, that first trailer is so good. It's so good. Has that Nirvana um, cover? Yeah. I, uh, you know, on on my um, my first date with my girlfriend, mm-hmm. the moment I knew that it was going to be good, at one point she turned to me and she was like, do you want to watch the Batman trailer? I was like, yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Is it going to tell me when fandom is? Um. October 16th. 16th, there it is. Saturday, October 16th. That's awesome. Getting, that that whole pause is gonna get cut in the editing. I hopefully. Maybe, maybe. No, <laughs> just yeah. let it in. Just leave it. That'll be fine. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And I'm sure uh, after fandom. Uh, I'm sure we will talk about whatever footage. I know. I know that at CinemaCon last month they did screen uh, some some new footage. I don't think uh-huh. it was a trailer. I think it was kind of more of a like a sizzle reel. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But whatever whatever it is, we'll talk about it on the show. Uh, rest mm-hmm. assured. So we are going to move on to our 
<coughs> excuse me, one of our two sort of main topics today, and that is the new Clint Eastwood directed and starring film Cry Macho. This is based on a novel of the same name that came out, I believe, in I think it was 1975. Mm -hmm. uh, it is basically the story of uh, Clint Eastwood plays Mike, who is a former uh, rodeo rider. Um, and his boss, uh, played by Dwight Yoakam, uh, basically says, I need you to go down to Mexico. My estranged wife or my ex-wife has our son. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he's being abused. I need you to go get him and bring him back. And that is sort of your, your basic premise, but we are spoiling things. So we do find out that the wife is very rich. She's got, it, it almost comes across like she's the head of a drug cartel or something. I don't think she yeah. is, but mm -hmm. uh, she's got the bodyguards everywhere in the, the big palace. And, mm -hmm. uh, and she sends some goons after them. And again, we'll get to the plot uh, very soon, but um, I'm going to ask you, Chris, you kind of knew my thoughts on this movie going into it. Mm -hmm. And I have an idea of what you thought from the chat, but why don't you give me your overall thoughts on that? Or bef you know, before we get there, mm -hmm. What do you think of uh, Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker? Uh, Clint Eastwood is is a talented filmmaker that I think is kind of hit and miss for me as a director. Um, he's done. I'm going to pull up some of his credits, uh, but he's done some some truly terrific films. Um, I mean, obviously, as an actor, the dude's a legend. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, I've seen everything from his his classic westerns um, to Dirty Harry. As a, as a director, I think that he's done some incredible things, uh, probably the best of which is for me is Unforgiven. Right. But, you know, he's done uh, Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, which are terrific. Uh, Mystic River, which is- Love that movie. Which, yeah, fantastic. Um, he's done other ones like Pale Rider is pretty good. He's done, what is it? Um, Play Misty for Me, which is his first one, which is a very good little thriller. But then he's done other ones that are just like, that's not very good. Like he's done other sequels to Dirty Harry, which aren't very good. He, and in most recently, I think he's been doing his lesser works. Um, everything from Hereafter to, to the 15, 17, to Paris, to Jersey Boys, J. Edgar also. It's just, he doesn't, he's, he has a consistent style and tone, but it doesn't have a consistent quality. He's just kind of, He's just been churning them out, man, especially in the last 10 years, which is crazy because he's been, you know, 80. He's 91 now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's where I that's where I stood with him as, as a filmmaker. So going into this, I was kind of not looking forward to it. Um, I haven't really been excited for a for a Clint Eastwood movie in a while, but especially everything from the trailer just made it seem like this wasn't doing it for me. It just kind of seemed like tired retreads of themes that he's explored before and that's what the movie was uh the movie's not very good i i had a a drag watching this it was it's not very long it's only an hour 45 minutes but it felt very long yeah. I, I think this is one of his uh lesser works ever that i've seen of his yeah i i did not like this movie at all um mm -hmm. I, I i hadn't seen a trailer i just sort of went in cold but mm -hmm. uh, i i found it like you said, it felt very long. Um, I found it very cliche. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it it explored a lot of uh, themes that we've seen him explore before. Mm -hmm. I I think 
I, I don't, I don't want to say my buddy was asking me today. He was like, so do you think it was selfish that he cast himself? No, I mean, he's Clint Eastwood. He's got all the clout in the world. I don't understand why. I mean, you were telling me that the character in the book is like 35 or 40 or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Clint Eastwood cast himself in this because it's, I don't want to come across as being ageist or anything like that, but like the man's age and, and, you know, like you said, he's 91, like he is getting very frail now because he's 91. Um, But like that becomes problematic for certain things in this movie Mm -hmm. that if he had just cast himself in a side role, if he wanted to be in it Mm -hmm. and had somebody else in the, in the main role, I think that would have solved a lot of those problems. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that's wrong with this film, but the, the biggest one, and it's the most glaring one, is, is the casting of himself in this role. Um, again, I haven't read the book, so I'm not just saying this to be like a purist, but in the book, it's, it's about a character that's not even 40 yet. It's in late 30s. And I was, reading, I was reading about it and how there's mentions throughout the book that like, by the time you turn 20 as like a, as like a horsebreaker, as like a rodeo, as someone who rides in the rodeo, you're already too old in a way. Like it's a very, it's very much a young man's game. And that wouldn't be an issue if the film and the script treated Clint Eastwood's character the age that he's, that he is. And again, it's not being ageist. It's just that there are things that happen in this film that it's just, it wouldn't happen. It it doesn't make sense for the age that he is. And I think the only reason why he cast himself is that this is a project that he's been, attached to for for quite a while uh this movie i think was trying to be made and all the way back into the 80s um and even then he might have been a bit too old even at like 60 you know he might have been too old uh i heard some i was reading some reviews where people said that maybe he should have cast uh his longtime collaborator or he's collaborated with a couple times uh bradley cooper i think would have fit in this role yeah i could see that and the reason why we're saying it is because it just doesn't there's multiple things and in court will back me up, but every, from the, from the very beginning, I was messaging court because there's a scene, it's kind of the inciting incident, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood is Mike. He's kind of like this old retired, uh, rodeo, blah, blah, blah. He's all washed up. And he has a buddy that, that he kind of is in debt to, to an extent that's helped turn his life around. And his friend is talking to him about why he's washed up. And mentioning everything except the fact that the dude is 91 fucking years old. Like, he's just like, oh, well, I mean, you were the best, but then the accident and then the drinking. And it's like, when did the accident happen? When he was, you know, 40? Because that's ages ago. And from there, he enlists this 91-year-old man who who looks and sounds like a 91-year-old man. Like, he's looking healthy. He doesn't look like he has any, you know, he looks like he's, he's healthy for his age. But by 91, you're frail. Like you're, he walks frail, he talks frail, he just looks tired. And the whole plot hinges on this guy being like, hey, go on this potentially dangerous mission to, to go bring my son back. Like 91 years old, I would be, I don't know, I feel like more, more people would be concerned even just to have him babysit, let right. alone drive across the country and bring back your kid. I don't know. From the beginning, I was like, this doesn't make sense. And it only gets worse from there. Well, and, and we do see, um, <clears throat> and I, I will, I will remind me to talk about the villain at some point, but uh, the sort of main antagonist of this movie, I don't remember the character's name might've been Aurelio, um, but he's like 
sort of the head bodyguard of this kid's mother in Mexico. Uh-huh. And he's mm-hmm. just kind of following them across Mexico, occasionally meeting up with them and trying to intimidate them and whatever. And there's a scene where Clint Eastwood's character, Mike, punches him in the face. And I, I felt bad, but I actually laughed out loud because, mm-hmm. again, Clint Eastwood, I'm not mocking him that he's not able to throw a really good punch. He's 91, mm-hmm. but it looked comical because mm. it was slow and telegraphed and then this i don't know maybe 30 year old like built bodyguard just goes down yeah um i was just like what like why not in that situation why not just use a stunt double mm-hmm. why not just shoot it like from from behind the shoulder it would have been fun uh-huh. I, I mean it would have maybe looked better on the screen but i think the my mind still would have went to the fact that you know they eventually would have cut back to frail right. clint eastwood and it's just like he there's no way like I, I we've been in the real world i'm i'm sure that there are some examples of like people in their 90s who are bodybuilders i don't know i'm sure somewhere in the world that has existed the cleanest was not and you could just see him and even before that scene there's another scene where like the the kid is is kind of like wrestling with him kind of mm-hmm. and he like kind of throws these awkward jabs and the kid straight face was like okay you're pretty fast for an old guy. Right. I'm like, no, he's not. Like, dude, that's nothing. And not only is he not fast, but there's no weight behind his punches. Yeah. Not only would, I don't even think that that punch that Clint threw would have even affected that guy. Like if this was in, if this was real life and not movie land, the guy just would have been like, what? Like he wouldn't have been knocked <laughs> back and bleeding. Also, oh my, I don't know. But yeah, that's that's just a, another example of that he's, the reason why it shouldn't have cast himself is that he's still playing kind of this rugged cowboy that that is intimidating and the character everybody's treating him as though he's just past his prime like right. maybe 40s maybe 50s that's what that's what they're treating him as as someone that's like oh he could still kick your ass he could still you know pick up the ladies he could still you know but he's just a little bit over the hill but he's not. Clint Eastwood, I'm sorry, he's just not. And we talked about it. Clint essentially picks up two women mm-hmm. in this movie. The only two women with actual speaking roles in the entire film. Yes. As um, far as I remember, anyway. Yeah. One of them, I I mean, I like both of them. I thought, I mean, they're not given too much to do, but I like the character of Marta, who's, mm-hmm. um, she was like the, she was the owner of that of that kind of restaurant that they, they that's like halfway into the movie where they, they stay for way too long. I don't know why they're staying there for that long. Yeah. I don't know if I missed an explanation. Um, but essentially both of them, like Marta looks maybe middle-aged, mm-hmm. but even middle-aged is that's too young. That's at least He's 40, still 40 years older. Yeah. At least 40 years old, maybe more. And then the other woman, she's 39. And I messaged you because I was thinking like, I couldn't, there was a scene that's that's played straight and i couldn't tell if the character was messing with him and it doesn't seem like she was like you mentioned there's other dialogue throughout that just kind of indicates that this character played by fernanda uh i apologize for for butchering that name Um, i don't know i could do but she's 39 and he's 91 she's 39 and she looks terrific and there's a scene where she's kind of like in a negligee and she's like inviting him sensually over to her bed and he's like and he just declines and she gets upset and it's like there's no he's not rich he's not there's no benefit for this character to right. get with him so other than the fact that she must be turned on by him and again 
you know, 48 year old, 49, however old Bradley Cooper is, I could kind of buy a 39 year old woman, maybe kind of putting herself out there for Bradley Cooper. Sure. But not for 91 year old, not for 91 year old anybody. Now, right. Clint Eastwood was one of the best looking dudes ever. I mean, you look at him in like in Good, the Bad, the Ugly, dude's handsome, probably could get any woman he wanted back in the day. And not in 91. And it happens twice in this movie. I actually found it kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and yeah, later on in the film, which is what I was referring to, referring to earlier uh, when I was talking to you was like the kid, the son, Raffo, he says, you know, my mom brings home a different dude every day. Like it just sounds yeah. like she's like a voracious sexual appetite, mm -hmm. but for a 91 year old Clint Eastwood, who's trying to take her son away from her, which mm. she does not want to have, like, it just, I didn't buy that for a second. Yeah, even narratively, it doesn't quite make sense. Again, that's why I initially thought maybe there was like she was planning something, but she wasn't. At the end of the day, it was just this awkward scene. Yeah. Which, which kind of plays into um, the other problems that I had with the film. Like I said, the, the main, the biggest glaring ob um, obstacle to enjoying this movie is the, the bad casting. But the entire movie just doesn't, quite work uh the story is pretty basic it's not a it's yeah. not a bad story you know uh go across the border pick up my son there's family problems there there's there's things that are ripe for for drama but it just never comes together and not only does clint eastwood sort of you know present himself on screen as kind of as a 91 year old man but his direction now kind of feels as though you're, you're kind of listening to someone who's, who's at that age tell a story where it kind of meanders and it doesn't quite, it seems like they're kind of losing their, their, their train of thought. Um, and he could be, you know, sharp as a tack for all I know in, in person, but the, the movie just has kind of like a slow pace and it doesn't have that deliberate slow pacing of like an art house film. It's just kind of awkwardly like, okay, we'll film this person from this angle saying their lines pause, cut to Clint saying his line, pause, and vice versa through through most of the film. So it's just kind of like, it just kind of like feels like this this awkwardly paced drama that doesn't reach the, the drama because everything feels phony. Nothing comes across as like authentic. Right. Well, and I, I will say, one thing I will say is like, I think, I think Clint Eastwood as miscast as he was, I think he's pretty good in the film. Mm -hmm. um, not some of his best work by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but he has one scene where he and Raffo are like uh, sleeping in that church. Mm -hmm. And Raffo asks him about his son who, who passed away years ago from a car accident. Mm -hmm. I thought he was like legitimately amazing in that scene. I really liked that scene. Um, I thought the woman who played Marta was good. Uh, Dwight Yoakam was whatever. He didn't really have much to do. Yeah. I, I, I hate doing this because he's a child actor. I think the actor is about 15. Mm -hmm. um, Eduardo Minette, I believe is his name, who plays Raffo. I thought he was like really stiff. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the other biggest problem with this film is the screenplay. I think the yeah. screenplay has a lot of problems. But to this kid's credit, he's given some of the worst dialogue in the movie to have to work with mm -hmm. um there's one scene sort of right after he met, meets clint eastwood um they're sitting down they're having a drink or something and clint eastwood's trying to convince him to come back to america to be with his father and like 
it just became this incredibly repetitive scene where the kid is angry and then he's hopeful and then he's angry and then he's hopeful. And it, I sort of, I sort of did this in my non-spoilery review, but it's kind of like, you know, I hate my father. And Clint's like, well, maybe he's trying to make up for lost time. He's like, you think he's, you think he's trying to make up for lost time? Yeah, I think so. No, he didn't call me on my birthday. I hate him. Well, he's got a lot of horses. He's got a lot of horses. Like, like he's the big boss man. Like it was just like a yeah. lot of that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I, I felt bad for this actor because the dialogue was so bad and then you know we jump back to the beginning with clint and dwight yoakam and like you want to talk about expository dialogue mm-hmm. it's basically like again i'm exaggerating like a little bit but not much mm-hmm. it's basically like mike listen i'm your boss you owe me and now you're fired but i need you to go do this and this 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 and this. like just explaining yeah. who you are who i am what this movie is about mm-hmm. um I, I thought i thought the screenplay was really pretty awful in this film how did how did you feel about yeah it? um yeah in the beginning it really it truly felt almost like a screenwriting mad lib in right. in the sense that it, it would have like it would have most of it just kind of like this character says i am insert relation and i want you to insert objective like it it just felt like you said very much it didn't feel like natural people it just kind of felt like i'm telling you who i am I'm telling you our relationship. I'm telling you what I want you to do. And it felt like that for a bit. And then as it got on, it, it kind of went away from the Mad Lib feel, but it would still, it just felt awkward. It, and, and I agree. I, I think that the kid, unfortunately, was maybe the, the weakest performance, uh, but he's a very, very new actor. He hasn't been in a lot of things. He's very young. And I think it's a combination of, of a lot of things. I think it's a combination of him being a young, inexperienced actor. Um, with with probably not great direction uh, from from Clint um, because a lot of people in this I felt were kind of awkward and stilted um, and bad dialogue and yeah. you combine all of those and it's it you get a you combine all of those you get a bad performance um, right. and another thing that that I, part of the reason why I said like maybe bad direction by Clint is that Clint Eastwood throughout his career as a director has been known as like one one take Clint or one shot Clint. Yeah. Uh, and he's one of those filmmakers and there's not many, but there are others that have, have this similar style of just like, we're doing it in one take. We're going to rehearse a lot, but then we're going to do it in one take. And when that's done well, like as long as you don't completely break character, even if you flub your lines, we're going to keep it in. And when it's done well, that can result on screen a bit of a, a bit of a loose feeling, a bit of a naturalism that has almost kind of like an improvisational feel. I've seen it done well in other films and the proofs in the pudding, like I said, Clint Eastwood has made great films before yeah. with the same kind of one shot kind of mentality. But when it's done poorly, you can see it. You can see it on the screen because a lot of times if, if an actor is kind of unprepared and I'm not saying a bad actor, I'm saying even a great actor, if they're not, if they're not getting into the rhythm of the scene, their first take's not going to be their best. Even if they don't flub it, even if they get all the lines correct, they sometimes an actor just needs to kind of marinate. Sometimes an actor needs to kind of get into the scene, do it a couple of times, work off the, the co-stars. And then maybe that third, fourth, fifth take, that's the money. But he didn't have that. So there's times, especially with what what's his name, Dwight Yoakam? Yeah. In the beginning, and not to harp on this guy, but it really, it really felt like when they were in his house and they were kind of talking by his fireplace or whatever it was, uh, it was just like this guy, 
this this is clearly his first and only take and they're like yeah good enough we're done and that's how i felt through a lot of it it felt a lot of it was just like yeah that'll do whatever good enough you hit the lines you don't break character good enough and it doesn't it didn't work here yeah there was there was that moment where he's telling clint uh, about the mission, what he wants him to do, and Clint's like, do whatever. And I remember there's one line that really stood out to me. Dwight Yoakam, his delivery was like, it's the way he said it. He was just like, "You owe me, Mike." And I was yeah. just like, "What? Like, mm-hmm. you gotta have another take on that." Like, yeah, it just sounded so. I don't know. Maybe pedantic is not the word, but mm. like you're in a position of power, but you're almost like you're saying it almost in a pleading way. Yeah. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't work for me at all. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and yeah, and that's why I really think that no one truly stood out in this to me. Um, like you said, Clint's not bad in this. I think that, but he's not really given too much besides that church scene when he's kind of getting emotional, mm-hmm. but even then I couldn't, I don't know, even in the church scene, I couldn't, I really tell was Clint crying? Was he just coughing? Cause he just has that naturally gravelly voice now. So yeah. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel any of the emotion in this. Um, some things that I'll say that are, that are kind of positives is that it's, it's not a bad looking film. Um, no, the, I thought it looked pretty good. Yeah. The cinematography is by um, Ben Davis. Who's, who's been in the business for a while. He's done a few Marvel movies. He's done three billboards uh, in Ebbing, Missouri um he's he's been in the business for a while and it looks good and there's some good you know shots of clint and or whoever in in the sunset and and such so it doesn't it doesn't it looks and sounds like a movie it's not like it's not like embarrassingly made and in to clint's um credit he still is a he still seems to know he still seems to have a visual sense of of storytelling there's little things of the way that maybe certain things are framed like um there's a there's a scene there's a brief moment of of kind of raffo and this young girl sitting in the in the uh the pick in the back of a pickup truck and then through the window there's like three little kids that are kind of watching them you know what i mean it's like two Mm -hmm. teenagers that are maybe kind of flirting and like their little siblings that are just kind of bugging them um just the way that he that that information is is kind of given visually, it still seems like okay. Clint is a filmmaker; he understands visual language. Yeah. Again, the story just wasn't there. I didn't care for for the the story, the themes of um, you know, of this world weary character. Not world weary, but just down and out he's tired he's been there he's done that i I used to be somebody you know what i mean that's we've seen that and there's nothing really new offered here besides the fact of this isn't new but besides clint kind of going into the monologue about how his wife and son died we're not really given an insight as to what this guy's deal is like that's clearly that's a big that's a big massive thing Mm -hmm. but what i'm trying to say is that he there's so many like long speeches of clint just being like i used to be this and i used to do that and macho that's don't be macho macho isn't being strong and being tough it's just an act blah 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 but i never really got a sense of like what is the theme like why is macho bad in this context do you know what i mean yeah yeah just um yeah, totally. I, I do also want to bring up, uh, we touched on a little bit earlier, but the villain, I think his name was Aurelio. Uh, I said it in the non-spoiler review and I, 
I don't I don't think I could word it any better here. Uh, I found the villain to be comically ineffective. Um, I didn't find him intimidating in any way, but like they just keep getting away from him. Like, you know, Clint throws that little punch and like down this guy goes. Mm-hmm. Um, another time they just like, they just sort of sneak out the back and then he's out of the mm-hmm. movie for another 20 minutes. And at the end of the movie, he gets beaten up by a chicken. So, oh my God. Dude. Now listen, professional cockfighting chicken uh, could kick the shit out of me. I know it, but I'm not like a 30 year old built bodyguard who's supposed to be scary in a movie he gets beaten up by a chicken and then he's yeah, out. that's like a that was like a moment out of like a like a nickelodeon kids movie you know what yeah. I mean? like the villain like i'll get you and oh no a chicken um but also that whole sequence it was like maybe two minutes two and a half minutes my my wife wasn't watching this with me but she kind of came in just to sit down on the couch uh just around that scene and it made us laugh out loud because it essentially happened like this it was like it was Clint Eastwood in, in the kid, in the car. And we were seeing them driving and they were just kind of talking. That was him, that's Clint talking. So they're just talking about life. Then, oh my gosh, for like 30 seconds, the, the bad guy kind of runs them off the road. Um, they get out of the car, the chicken attacks, attacks them. They go into another car. And then the next cut is just them like driving again. Yeah like nothing happened they're just in a different car and my wife and i both laughed out loud because it really was it was almost like a a family guy edit you know where it's like nothing nothing happened from this to that it was literally like okay this guy ran us off the road Uh, he's really ineffective and he's not really threatening okay back to driving and talking right why why even have it then yeah 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 i mean I am not going to recommend this movie to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shame because I, I really do like Clint Eastwood as an actor. I, I like him as a filmmaker. I do, do agree that he's, he can be hit or miss. I didn't see 1517 to Paris. I heard that it was, and I, I applaud the guy for trying the thing where you got the actual people who were involved in this real life thing to put them in the movie. I applaud giving it a try. My understanding is it did not work at all. No. Um I really liked Richard Jewell, which was last year, two years ago. Mm. I enjoyed um, I enjoyed Sully for the most part. I, I dug the mule. Um, and I hadn't seen a trailer for this one. So going in, I was like, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. It's, it's a Western. And mm. I think this will work. Didn't mm. work for me at all. No. Uh, didn't work for you at all. Uh, is there anything else specific you want to bring up or shall we move on? No, no, we can move on. It's, it's, not, it's not very good. Um, I... It's sad. I mean, he's done other kind of, uh, like I said, I think that if you want to see, if you're a big Clint Eastwood fan, both of him as a filmmaker and actor, I would say, and you want to watch kind of a swan song, something that really kind of encapsulates um, his, his career and all of his, his themes in, into one, watch Unforgiven, when, which was originally going to be his last film, but you know that was a big hit, so he started doing more over 30 years ago. And if, and if you want something more recent, watch Gran Torino, which is an, also very similar. And it's also very much a, a Clint Eastwood swan song to his cinematic persona. And this one is just not worth it for even for the biggest Clint Eastwood fan. Right. All right. So we're going to move on to our final topic of the day. It's the shitty one. It's the sad one. It's the yeah. one that sucks. Um, so the other day, September 14th, um, Norm MacDonald passed away after a a secret nine-year battle with uh, what turned out to be leukemia. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you were the one who sent me the news. I, you were the one who uh, ruined my day. Yep. Um, it was absolutely shocking. Um, like I said, off the top, I've always thought that Norm Macdonald is one of the funniest people of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been watching Saturday Night Live since I was a kid. I've watched, uh, they used to do reruns. So I've watched from the seventies all the way up um, for my money. Hands down. He is the gold standard of, or was, I should say, uh, the gold standard of weekend update hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, I really liked Seth Meyers. I really liked Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Um, never was so into Fallon. Um, Jane Curtin and uh, Dan Aykroyd together were great. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something about Norm's delivery, and that was true of everything he did, whether it was conversations or stand up or movies. He had that that amazing sort of deadpan delivery. Um, he had an incredible command of the English language. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a very, very smart man, a very well-read man from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when he would get on update and, you know, do the OJ jokes or some of the classics of, yep, you guessed it, Frank Stallone, or of course, so the Germans would have us believe. And a lot of the times you would know that that was the punchline that was coming and it didn't matter because the delivery was so, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into sort of specific things that we liked or that we want to talk about, um, do you remember where you first saw Norm or sort of what were your impressions of him as a comedian? Yeah, so um, I think I was first introduced to him because I was I was pretty young. So I, I, I didn't see kind of some of the classic bits from, from SNL. And so I was a little bit older, maybe late 90s, early 2000s. That's when my family really kind of started showing it to me. So I saw him in a few things. I mean, he was in Billy Madison. Um, I think that was the first thing that I saw him in. And then he did a, like a bunch of voice acting work and a lot of things from Dr. Doolittle to some cartoons and such. So I'd seen him around, but it really wasn't until, yeah, I started seeing him in like SNL and then, um, you know, the classic bits of the weekend update and just seeing his standup, you know, whether it's on Comedy Central or any of his amazing interviews at late, like late night talk show. Like he's one of the late night, late night talk shows are kind of hit and miss. Um, I mean, it's, it's, there's been some awful guests in, you know, from Conan to Jay Leno to David Letterman. Norm is always funny. You could watch any of his from, from that. And it's always funny. And I've always liked him. There was always something about him where even when he was doing kid friendly stuff, there's such an idiosyncratic quality to his humor where, like you said, it's, it's deadpan, but it's also a lot of like just awful, awful jokes. Like they're not, it's like non-comedy where it's just, he'll, he'll do these long ramp ups with, with twists and turns, this long gestating story for just a lame pun of a, of a punchline, Mm -hmm. but that's the joke. And I don't know. I, the, he's, he was truly an original. I know that's probably cliche to say that everybody's saying that, but it's it's true. There, there was no one, I think, that was as courageous as him in the sense of just going out in front of people and telling what you know is a god-awful groaner of a joke. Mm-hmm. But But it made him laugh. And I think it made him laugh to say that and to have an audience reaction of like, oh, God, you know, just... Because there were a lot of times, especially you watch Weekend Updates, there's a lot of times some of the funniest bits to me was when he'll say something and the audience does not laugh at all. And he's just like, "Eh, eh." like he just. Well, yeah, he would he would he would like 
if if a, if a joke bombed, he would sort of like stare down the camera. And sometimes that was the funniest part. Like I saw a clip the other day of him telling one of his patented OJ jokes mm-hmm. and the crowd just kind of goes quiet. And then he looks at the camera and he goes, the audience is torn. <laughs> and that made it that much funnier, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been watching a lot of comedians or people who knew him talking about him. And they were saying like, you know, he liked to troll people. He would sometimes go to a stand-up set and purposefully bomb because he thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. He didn't care if he was getting laughs from the crowd as long as he was making himself laugh. Yeah. He was happy, which I think is great. And mm-hmm. uh, one specific, because we were, we were saying we'll talk about some specific bits and whatever. Mm-hmm. One bit that I, that I love, uh, he was one of the roasters on the Comedy Central roast of Bob Saget. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are those are like, those are rough. Like those people yeah. go hard and he went up. And the first thing is like throughout the entire show, except when he was up doing his bit, when he's sitting on the dais, he's just sitting there reading the newspaper, reading from the sports section, not paying attention at all, which was hilarious. And then he goes up and he starts telling these, like, I don't even want to give them uh, the courtesy of calling them dad jokes. That's, that's an insult to dad jokes. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember he's talking about Greg Giraldo and he says something like, he has the eyes of an eagle and the, the soul of a hawk. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is for the birds. And then he's talking about Bob Saget. He's like, you can always tell when Bob Saget has something on his mind, a hat. And like, they were so purposefully bad. And yeah. but what's so good is like, when you watch it, at first the audience is like silent and it's awkward, but then you can hear as he goes along, you can hear the audience starting to figure out that he's trolling. And they start getting that that's kind of what's funny about it. And by the end, like Bob Sagan is laughing his head off mm-hmm. and it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And I highly recommend anyone can go on YouTube and, and find that bit. Um, but it's, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific bits from late night or stand up or anything that you want yeah. to talk about? Yeah. I mean, like you touched on them, a lot of the weekend updates. I've just been this week. I've just been watching a ton of uh, compilations of it. So like all of them are great. Um, a more recent one, it wasn't a weekend update, but I think this was in the last maybe five, six years, but the, it's a, the infamous moth joke yeah. on Conan O'Brien, yep. which again is, is I think is quintessential norm humor of just, just the worst punchline after the biggest buildup. Um, it's like a six-minute joke. For, yeah, it is for a pun, and it's it, it's ridiculous. Um, well, I think one of the best you know skits he was a part of. Was, Actually, you uh, know, b- before you say that, okay. let me just for the moth thing, because uh, Conan O'Brien and Andy Richter did a special uh, episode of their podcast a couple days ago, just to remember Norm. And so apparently, the moth joke, Norm got that joke from Colin Quinn, okay. uh, but that joke, the way Colin Quinn told it, was twenty seconds long. Yeah. But what had happened was that uh, uh, Norm was on Conan's show. He had like eight minutes of material uh, mm-hmm. prepared for a segment. And then they went to commercial and then the producer was like, uh, we need you to do another segment. We need another seven minutes. And Norm didn't have anything. And he mm-hmm. literally, all, the whole story about like the moth and his Russian boss and like all that mm-hmm. stuff, all of that he was making up on the fly just yeah. to fill that time. And it's mm. some of the funniest shit I've ever seen. And Conan yeah. actually said on his podcast, he's like, you know, as a host, sometimes I have to, you know, amp up my laughter a little bit. If somebody's telling a story that's maybe not working so well, whatever he's yeah. trying to be a gracious host. He's like, if you ever want to see me 
actually laughing my head off watch anything with norm that's me and my like natural mm-hmm. anyway so you were saying you were going to say about a skit oh um when he was um it was essentially celebrity jeff uh, jeopardy on on snl and he was uh burt reynolds and it's that aka turd ferguson exactly and it's uh i remember i think that was maybe one of the the earlier ones that i'd seen of him as a kid and i just thought it was like the funniest thing and um yeah there's there's too many like i've just been going through um again like just compilation after compilation on on youtube everything from snl to stand up bits to just <laughs> award shows like just roasting people mercilessly mercilessly yeah. especially oj simpson oh my god mm-hmm. um yeah the dude was but also i, I was listening to, uh, to other comedians talk about him and that's been really insightful of just how much respect he had among other comedians for being so unique and being so true to, to himself and not not chasing anything he's not he wasn't chasing trends he wasn't chasing fame he wasn't just doing things that that he thought other people would like he did what he wanted and that's incredible um also just hearing stories about how he's absolutely just insane he's Mm. just he's just like he was just a crazy person um i think it was jamie kennedy i know who was it it was okay i can't i can't think of his name right now um but he was just telling this story and again this isn't like a huge story with a or a hilarious story with a big punchline. it was just like little things of like where he was at a bar and then Norm Macdonald called him on a phone at like, this is like at noon. He was just hanging out watching some football. And Norm was like, hey, uh, do you want to hang out? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm at, a, I'm at this bar. Come come by. He's like, okay, sure. Eight hours passed. Oh, and so yeah, yeah. I everything, everything was like the, the game was over. The guy was hammered and he was like leaving. And Norm just walks in like, hey, where are you going? He's like, what are you t- You called me eight hours ago, like a full work day ago. Um and, and he's just shit like that, where he's just kind of like a lot of stories of that, of just calling up people randomly, like, come to my hotel and just weirdness would follow. Right. So, yeah, in addition to to checking out his bits, like his comedy bits and, and guest spots on TV, I would recommend people seek out uh, kind of not a, it's not the obituaries, but people remembering him. Yeah, um, because it's you get some really great insights into into who he was as a person and and that's been really fascinating and funny and, and touching to kind of go through this this past week yeah i saw seth myers talking about him and he was saying that uh his all-time favorite weekend update joke and of course seth myers was the host of weekend update for years his all-time favorite update joke not norm but overall um was something about norm was talking about this 10 year old billionaire had a birthday party He's like, if you'd like to know what a a 10 year old birthday party for a billionaire looks like, they had two cakes. I was like, that's such a fucking norm joke. And I love it. (laughs) Um, Of course, on SNL, he was known for playing Bob Dole, Uh uh, Burt Reynolds, as you said. I loved his David Letterman, which apparently he kind of struggled to do because he loved David Letterman so much. He didn't want to make fun of him. Yeah. Um, But that was that was amazing. Um, a couple other bits that I want to bring up. Actually, he did a stand-up special a few years back. I believe it was called Me Doing Stand-Up. Mm-hmm. And he told a joke, uh, and it's it's kind of morbid now to think about it. Um, but he told a joke that basically like something along, I, I don't want to try and you know do the guy's joke, but yeah. something along the lines of like, you know, people always say they lost their battle to cancer, but 
you know, when you die, the cancer dies too. So I wouldn't call that a loss. I'd call that a draw, mm -hmm. which is funny. But then you think about like, he had cancer when he was telling that joke. Yeah. Uh, because it was less than nine years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that. There is uh, an epic and iconic bit from uh, Conan's original show, the late night show, where I guess Norm was the original guest, the first guest, and Courtney Thorne Smith was the second guest. Have you seen this? Mm, oh so. my goodness gracious. Um, <clears throat> if you guys haven't seen this, it's from like 20 years ago. Uh, I think if you go on YouTube, I think I usually see it called Norm Saves the Interview. Okay. Basically, Courtney Thorne Smith had just left. Um, what was her show? Oh, is this when she was? It's the woman that was going to be in the movie with Carrot Top, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I, ha I have seen this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she just left uh, whatever whatever show she was on. It wasn't Nine Hundred Two and O. It was one of those. Uh, yeah. And she left that to go do a movie with Carrot Top. And Norm is just being absolutely merciless. Um, uh, so at one point, Conan says, um, "You know what's this movie called?" And Norm just jumps in and he's like. Uh, you know, I think they should call it. Uh, if it's uh, apparently that's my norm impression. Yeah. <laughs> um, if it stars Carrot Top, you know what a good name would be? Box Office Poison. She's like, I'm in the movie. I'm sitting next to you. And my favorite line of the whole thing is he goes, I'm not making fun of her. I'm going to go see it for her because she's a she's a lovely woman and a wonderful talk show guest, which that killed me. Yeah. Oh and then God. at the end, at the end, Conan goes, Okay, so what's the movie called? And she goes, Chairman of the Board. And Conan's like, oh, okay, do something with that smart guy. And then without missing a beat, Norm goes, yeah, it's probably spelled B-O-R-E-D. And Conan like stands up and walks away from his mm -hmm. chair because he's just dying. It is absolutely delightful. It's brilliant, yeah. Uh, a couple other things I want to mention. I bought this years ago. Uh, I brought it down uh, to show you all. This is Norm MacDonald's uh, memoir. It's pretty sure it's mostly fictitious. Uh, mm -hmm. this book is absolutely fucking hilarious. Uh, I read it in a couple of days and I'm a slow reader, but, uh, I just, I couldn't stop, but I, I was out with a buddy and I just bought it on a whim. Cause I was like, it's a book by Norm Macdonald. I'm going to, I'm going to love it. And of course I yeah. read it in my head in his voice mm -hmm. and I'm told you can get it on uh, audiobook where he's actually reading it, which I'm sure Ooh, would be amazing. Perfect. But never, I, I opened the book to the first page and I started laughing. Never have I read a book where the dedication page was fucking hilarious. But this dedication page reads to Charles Manson and then in brackets, not that one. <laughs> Amazing. Um, one, one final thing that I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, and I asked you about this in the chat last night. Uh, Norm uh, had one movie that he uh, starred in uh, it was directed by Bob Saget. I believe it was 1996 or 97. I'm not sure. The movie was called Dirty Work. Um, it was him. It was Artie Lang. Chevy Chase was in it. Jack Warden was in it. Adam Sandler has a cameo. Gary Coleman has a cameo. Uh, Chris Farley. It's my favorite. There might be SNL sketches with Chris Farley that I like better, but as a film performance, this is the best thing I've ever seen Chris Farley do. Uh, not to spoil too much, but he had his nose bit off by a Saigon whore. So they play that for some good jokes. Um, the movie is basically about uh, Norm MacDonald and Artie Lang are like best friends. And Norm's character, Mitch, has always had an excellent proclivity for getting revenge on people. 
So he decides to open a business, a revenge for hire business. And Christopher McDonald, who you guys may remember while we're talking SNL movies as Shooter McGavin in Happy Gilmore, he plays the villain here. He's just as slimy as Shooter, if not more. This movie, shot in Toronto, by the way, uh, this movie is fucking hysterical. It is so good. I was talking to a couple of buddies today. We were having a little Norm conversation. And I was saying, I would put it up there. And uh, this is all, of course, my personal preference. But I would put Dirty Work up there. Not maybe quite to the level, but like really, really close to Dumb and Dumber. And Dumb and Dumber to me is one of the funniest films ever made. It's so stupid, but it's so funny. This movie is absolutely absurd, but it is so quintessentially norm. Like his delivery, everything about it, it gets very bizarre. There is one moment in the movie, and nobody's ever agreed with me on this. Uh, he's not even talking, he's just moving. I am convinced he's doing a Michael Keaton impression. Um, he's, he's, just, he's just kind of doing this thing and the things he's doing with his face. I'm, sh I'm, I'm certain of it, uh, but uh, I guess we'll never know. Um, so- You know, those classic Michael Keaton impressions that everyone No, but does. you know, but like if you watch it and you think Michael Keaton, I think you'll be able to see it. All right, I'll uh, check it out. No, I do uh, want to see this now because I, I don't think I've even heard of this. Yeah, prior prior to you mentioning it, um, so I don't yeah. think it got a I don't think it got a terribly big theatrical release. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even. I think I probably just picked it up randomly in like the blockbuster. That's how old I am. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the first time I saw it, I was just like I was crying laughing. Yeah, um, he gets the best out of Farley. Um, I'm I'm not a huge Chevy Chase guy. I I really like him in this movie. He plays a doctor who's. Uh, uh, heavily in debt to uh like uh to sharks you know mm -hmm. so he's like throughout the movie he's increasingly more injured um which is great it is it is absolutely hysterical for anyone who has not seen dirty work do yourself a favor uh, check it out because it is it is just so good right on well i that i'm definitely going to be checking out soon and i'll let you know um definitely going to be on a, a norm bender or norm yeah. kick for a while um yeah just too soon, man. I again, nobody knew. Uh, it seems like everybody, all of his, like a lot of his friends, Conan has talked about it. A lot of people just how shocked they were. Mm. Uh, and sixty-one is is far too young. So, a, a definite one of a kind that I don't think we're gonna see. We're never gonna see anyone quite like him. No. You know, there'll be there'll be other people that that are their own. They're unique. They 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 in in their respective in that regard, but no one quite like Norm. Yeah. And, I, you know, I will say, um, you know, I think, I think and I try not to spend too much time thinking about death and all that because it's rather morbid, but mm. I think, you know, particularly if you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, I think everyone has the right to go out in their own way. Mm. And, you know, some people, I, I've heard some people saying that like to keep it secret is selfish because you're robbing people of the chance to prepare themselves. And I, I get that perspective, mm. but at the end of the day, it's your life and it's your death. And mm. he wanted to keep it secret. That's what he wanted to do. And you know what? More power to him because he did it. And uh, he went out on his own terms. And I, I, I respect that very much. No, I, I do too. Um, I mean, I think that in, in, I don't know. I hopefully there was someone in his life that knew, hopefully, I don't know. Uh, but I do agree that, I, I'm, I'm on your side in the sense that I don't think that it's selfish. I think that he, you know, that's as 
personal as anything could possibly get your yeah. death and you're faced with your own mortality. You don't owe anybody anything. And to, to kind of, to deal with it on your own terms, I think is the only way to go about it. So I, I'm glad that, you know, he did what he felt was, was best. And I hope that he, he, I hope that he continued to feel that this was the best thing to do. Um, it's certainly, I don't know, maybe some people, I think just, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with people treating them differently. And I think people do will treat you differently. If you, if you tell them you have a terminal illness. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's a damn shame. It, it really, this is one of the few, and this is not me, you know, saying anything negative about celebrities that pass, but you know, there are some that it's like, oh, well, I never really resonated with their work. I wasn't, you know, too familiar with them. Uh, Norm was definitely one that hurt. Like I, I was absolutely shocked when I heard and, and he's, he's meant so much to me in, in my life. And he's, he's been such a comedic figure in my life that I, I just never even thought about him passing until, you know, years and years from now. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really gutting, man. Mm. Um, so I guess uh, the only thing to say is rest in peace, Norm. And uh, thank you for the last man. It's uh, mm. gave me a lot of them give us a lot of them give us all a lot of them um so that is the show for today not to end on a, on a bummer note but hey we're celebrating the man's life we're celebrating mm-hmm. the man's uh comedy and uh yeah so uh that is the show um we want to thank you guys for watching uh of course we want to encourage you to drop a like on the video if you did enjoy it jump into the comments let us know what you thought of crime macho particularly let us know what was your favorite norm mcdonald bit uh, of all time uh of course again we want to let you know you can get audio versions of this podcast at uh, spotify google podcast places like that um before we sign off chris where can people follow you online my instagram handle which is called art of light and shadow it's a fun daily kind of film blog i, I post about things that i'm watching recently i do some uh, movie rankings and there's a lot of community you know voting on and stuff like that a lot of fun like community events that I, i've been trying to do it's been a lot of fun so check it out art of light and shadow and if you want to check out andres who of course was not here today go on youtube do a search for cheap thrills unspeakable terror he reviews um basically uh low budget horror and sci-fi movies from the dawn of cinema to the modern era it's a great little channel uh check it out for sure you're already on my channel so you know where to find me uh but if you haven't subscribed i would uh, love you forever if you did um and that's the show again we just want to say thank you for watching and of course um be safe out there be healthy and we will see you guys next week okay take Take care care, everybody bye